Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, Episode 60 for October 5th, 2006. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 11. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. All right, Steve Gibson, we are back and we have an apology for last week. (laughs) I'm so, so sorry. We're just both of us so distracted and busy. Um, and of course, you know we uh, we're recording this episode on Saturday early because you're off to Toronto again next week, and uh, and so for us it was yesterday that we were together at the podcast and portable media expo. Wasn't that fun? It was really great. I mean, so, so many Security Now listeners uh, and you know just general Twit supporters were there. Uh, I mean, you know, my hand but well, isn't quite. You know, falling off from, <laughs> from, from, from from shaking so many people's hands, but it was really neat to have that contact. Yeah, but I and really, it's my fault entirely, not Steve's. We had the podcast done. I just was a, a little fuzzy with all of the attention, and I just I forgot. Oh. And I'll be honest with you, it was it's very simple. I just forgot. But I got it up when I got to the airport. I ran out of there because uh, I had a flight and uh, had a, a couple minutes at the airport. I had found some Wi Fi. Um, because we remembered, I think we remembered in the car. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's like, oh, driving well, away. I mean, I literally thought it was Thursday. I didn't even know what confused. day it was. Yeah. So, but it, well, yeah. it's not your responsibility. It's my responsibility. We had done it. So, yeah. uh, I, I, you know, as soon as I got to somewhere, anywhere that I could uh, get it up, I did. In fact, they were boarding the plane, and I'm typing very frantically. <laughs> well, and and a lot of listeners were writing in saying, "Hey, what happened? Where are you guys? Are you guys okay?" And so anyway, so I want to thank everyone for your concern. We're and, okay. And we really do try never to be late because I know it's important and people have have a sort of factored into their schedules, right. which is, you know, also very flattering to us. So, Well, unfortunately, it's the nature of a podcast sometimes that, uh, I mean, uh, I don't want to say we're, we're amateurs, but uh, we're certainly, uh, it's, it's more of a hobby than a profession. And so... Sometimes things happen, and I, I do apologize. We will. But it's, we in a way, it's gratifying because we know now that people actually listen. Yes, and we both do take it very seriously. Oh yes, so you know Absolutely. that's why we're reco- that's why we're recording this one on a Saturday morning, so that there will be something. <laughs> there, will, there will be something next Thursday. That's right, because I'm off to Canada now to do a, a Security Now right after this one. We do have it's a it's a episode sixty that's divisible by four, so you know what that means. Yep, a listener Q and A. I think we've got a dozen good questions from our listeners all around the world. Starting off. With uh, Ibebro, I hope I'm saying it, or Abebro, Denmark. You know, I met some Danish uh, podcasters while I was uh, at Podcast Expo. And oh, cool. we have some real fans in uh, Denmark. Morton Renson says, where do I find the show notes for security now? <laughs> simple, sort of a s- simple, short question, yeah. sort of a little bit of a softball question. Um, but but it does come up. So I just wanted to let people know that you know, on the Security Now page, the every um, every episode has a, its own box with a description. The first icon is the high-quality 64K bit audio. The second icon is the quarter bandwidth 16K for, yeah, as as you put it, Leo, for the bandwidth impaired. The third icon is always the show notes. And, you know, many shows don't have them, but from time to time we'll have one like we did last time or actually time before where we were talking about the VML exploit. And there, I mean, that page has been heavily read, something like 8,500 readings per day, wow. I think it was wow. getting. So, so yeah, so it's the third icon in for every single show is always the show notes. And then the following three are various forms of the transcripts that Elaine does. And, in fact, we met her for the first time. That was fun. She came, yeah, she came out to the podcast expo, and so we were able to hang out with her also. Yeah, she's our transcriptionist, a wonderful person who does a very good job. I, and I have to apologize. On many of the other shows, we have 
uh, more complete show notes, I point to Steve's page for the show notes. Um, but f- from time to time, I will put, if, if there's something really important, I'll put links uh, right. in the show notes on twit.tv as well. And maybe I'll start doing uh, more of that because, it, you know, it's really just a time issue. Um, so we'll figure out some way to get more information there. So that, you know, because I know a lot of people just go to twit.tv. In fact, actually, the truth is a lot of people uh, don't even go to any web page. They listen to it. It's automatically downloaded. Right. And, and we, on some of the shows, actually do put more complete show notes in the a uh, little descriptive field that you can see if you have an iPod or some MP3 players, you can see a descriptive field with the, with extra text. And that's not linkable if you're listening on a portable player, but at least you could see more, and I, I should put more in there. So I'll I'll try. I'll do well, my talking best. About, and talking about time, Leo, you've, you, you've just added another podcast, uh, right? Yeah, two more. Yeah, we, we have a new one uh, from Paul Therod. I'm really excited about Windows Weekly. Yep. Um, and I, th- I was talking with you about that uh, yesterday, and I really think that's going to be one of the top shows that we do because there's so many people interested in Vista. And Paul is so great. <laughs> you were with me, wasn't and, and he's not a Microsoft apologist either. <laughs> you were with me, weren't you, when we met the Microsoft I was. guy? I was. <laughs> we, uh, there was a, a market guy, marketing guy from Microsoft uh, who, was in char- who was part of the Vista program, I, I think. And um, actually, I'm glad to have met him. I've got his card. And he said, Steve, when if you get pissed off at Vista, call me first. <laughs> he said it more gently than that. But, <laughs> but that was the gist of it. We'd like to, you know, we're doing our best. We're trying our hardest. And we would love to uh, have a chance to uh, talk to you if you have any questions. Uh, and that's completely reasonable. It's nice to have a channel in there. And then I said, hey, great news. We're going to do a Windows Vista podcast. Vista podcast and uh, Paul Therott will be doing it. Pause. <laughs> Pause. He says, "Oh, that's good." And that, and to me, that was the reaction I wanted. If I, if the Microsoft marketing guy had said, "Oh, that's great," <laughs> I might not have been quite so happy. But Paul tells it like it is, and that's ultimately what the the, the uh, Microsoft fellow said. He said, "Well, one thing about Paul, he's honest." And I said, "Yes, that's why we have him." Yep. Windows Weekly. So we'll probably and you, and, be, be covering. And then you're also. I'm sorry. We'll probably and, 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 go ahead. <laughs> and, then, and then you're also doing a a new legal podcast. We are, and you met Denise as well, Denise yep. Howell, who is a very well known legal blogger, and will bring some great legal minds in to talk about some of the big issues uh, in in tech law. Now, not just not law in general, but boy, there's sure a lot of tech law, and and, and you know we've we've sat there on Twit sometimes trying to wrap our minds around some of these legal issues, and not done such a great job. Although Denise was kind enough to say, well, you do pretty well. But I thought it'd be better to have somebody who actually has some training in this talking about these things. So it, that's coming out uh, uh, probably after I get back from Canada. I don't know if I'll be able to get it out this weekend, but I'll try. I'll try. I'll do my best. Meanwhile, another question. and We, we got off on a sidetrack here. Brian Voller of Ashland, Oregon writes, considering the recent VML hole, that's what we were talking about in episode 58, very, very serious Windows hole, which has since been patched. Yep. We're, we're glad to say. Is it possible for a bad web bad website to re-register that DLL through ActiveX and exploit it? Because that was our fix for it, was unregister the VML DLL. I ask right. this because if it couldn't be done without already having infected the system, why did Microsoft wait even one minute and use the automatic patch system to do what you instructed us to do? Couldn't they have just done that automatically? Then they could take their time and really go over that DLL with a fine-tooth comb. If that's the case, and considering how easy it was to disable the previous WMF issue... It seems to me to be criminally negligent on their part. Um, I like this question because it it starts off suggesting that, well, if a bad website could use ActiveX to re-register the DLL. Which it could, of course. Well, okay, let's stop right there. Um, We know that ActiveX is itself inherently a huge problem. Right. I mean, ActiveX is downloading essentially a DLL code into your machine and running it. So if a bad website can use ActiveX to to um, re-register a flawed DLL, well, it could just as easily do anything else it wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, so, so I mean, I, I wanted to sort of like refocus That's the on, least thing they would do. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I see what I you're mean, saying. Yeah, I mean, doing that it w- would be a very roundabout means of of doing what they would really want to do if any bad website 
could run ActiveX. What that means is it's running it, it code it just provided your browser natively in your system. Well, you're already hosed. I mean, it's game over at that point. So, so you know, shutting down ActiveX or limiting scripting uh, so that you're only allowing scripting for sites you trust, or switching to a browser that does not that explicitly does not support ActiveX. Um, you know, Firefox without an ActiveX add-on, for example, um, will make you substantially more secure, so you don't have to worry about browsers doing that. Now, the newer versions of Internet Explorer, of course, uh, you know, post-service pack 2, they will warn you when a site is attempting to provide your system with an ActiveX control and run it and give you the opportunity, finally, of saying, uh, no. I don't like this site enough. I don't trust this site enough to allow that to happen. All right. Yeah. I, I, th- there have been in the past uh, uh, bugs that would prevent the certificate from showing up. Um, and that's really scary because then that, that's similar to the VML hole. It means any program could do any, any website could do anything it wanted. Right. But that's working right now, the certificate system. Yes. Yes. We hope. <laughs> as far as we know. Well, uh, but, but again, you're, you're still trusting your user ultimately to say, uh, I'm not going to let this site Well, no, that's run. the point, is that in the past they've been able to get around that warning. Right. So as long as you're getting the warning, yeah, one hopes that you're going to have people smart enough to say no. That's another, another matter entirely. Right. Colin McWilliams, wandering around the U.S. somewhere, says, in Security Now 52, Leo talked about downloading Hamachi server... Then you talked about setting up your own private Hamachi network. I looked online to try to find the Hamachi server, but couldn't find anything like that. Hamachi's great, but I'm looking for a solution that does the same as Hamachi and allows me to control the network. Rightly so, since Hamachi's now been sold. You might have some concerns about it. Uh, but you know, he wants to host the Hamachi server. But where is it? I can't find it. Well, we did address this once, but I wanted to bring come back to it because many people at the podcast expo yesterday were, you know, telling us what fans they are of Amachi. They loved they loved the fact that Security Now turned them on to this great solution. There was some concern about Hamachi's sale um, that that you know Alex sold it to log me in. Uh, folks, and I wanted so I wanted to remind people that you know for what it's worth, I did talk to Alex uh, Pankratov, Hamachi's inventor, father, designer, and ultimately uh, seller. Um, and he really did check these guys out and believed that they were they were really going to follow his philosophy of of keeping this thing secure, not playing any games with people, and and you know doing the right thing so for what that's worth you know he he didn't just sell it to the first people who came along he he really felt like he vetted them completely as to the hamachi server it turns out that that was something he was talking about on his website originally and had intentions to do some sort of a hardware bundled solution it would not have been ever downloadable software because he just knew he would never be able to to control it from a from a piracy uh, standpoint okay. so it was so he was going to do some sort of a a box the way google has like their own google search appliance that you're able to purchase he was going to do a hamachi networking appliance of some sort tying the software to the hardware um, it, it never got past early alpha stage. The the guys he sold Hamachi to, the log me in folks, do now have that as something they could pursue, but there's been no indication of whether they're intending to do that or not. So it's sort of not something that, that anyone should should plan on and or and or expect to have happen. So we we probably shouldn't have said anything about it, frankly. Well, we, yeah, we didn't know at that yeah, point. Yeah. So I so I did talk to Alex again to find out what's the story on server, and and that's how I I got the the full the full update. Scott of Cincinnati, Ohio, wonders about virtual machine USB support. I plug a thumb drive into my computer and intend for the USB drive to be recognized by the virtual machine. How does the host operating system know the thumb drive is for the virtual machine and and not for itself? Well, that this is a perfect question that follows from the issues we were talking about 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 USB support within virtual machines. If a if a computer that is the hosting machine, obviously it's got hard drives, and you might have already plugged a USB thumb drive in, so it's appearing in the host machine. Well, any of the virtual machines could be asked to see that 
thumb drive as a hard drive but what the USB support does, it, it's sort of it's sort of similar to CD-ROM support, where when you insert the CD, who's going to own that the the existence of that CD once it becomes acknowledged by the system? So what USB support does within a virtual machine is it makes that support dynamic, so that so that when a USB device appears. And, and any USB device, not just drive devices. Drive devices are sort of easier and always have been because a drive can be recognized by the host system, which you could then inform the virtual machine to be able to see. But, but the, the, the idea is the USB support makes this a dynamic process, and you, you specifically configure the host and the virtual machine so that the virtual machine will be able to acquire any USB devices that appear once that virtual machine is already running. So it sort of makes the whole thing more dynamic and fluid, much as it normally is when you're just running uh, USB devices on a host without virtual machines. Does it um, decide uh, based on which window is frontmost? In other words, if the virtual machine is kind of in the background, does it still well, grab able- the USB? You're able to configure the. I mean, it, there is a problem because you've got like sort of a resource contention problem. Because right. what if so, I put in a CD-ROM and I want it to be for the Mac, but I've got Parallels running? Who gets it? Yeah, same thing um, with a USB device. You, you're able to you're, you're able to configure that um, on a per virtual machine basis. So it will always get it if I've turned it on to get it. Correct. Oh, that's interesting. I was hoping, uh, and it seemed to be that maybe it was just when it was frontmost only, but I guess not. Yeah, it is a problem. But, you know, I mean, hey, you're still getting to run two operating systems at once. Exactly. Raphael Wolf in Warsaw, Indiana, has become a Parallels fan. He writes, holy sheetrock, Parallels is amazing. (laughs) Parallels is a virtual machine that you recommended in our last episode. It's for Windows and Mac. How is Parallels different, similar than a bootable flash key? Ah, interesting. Using PE Builder and Flash Boot, he's been able to create a bootable Windows flash key and a DOS key as well. Um, is it possible to take the image off the bootable flash key and run it through Parallels Compression and make it even smaller? Well, this was a great question because there are two different solutions. There is, of course, the idea of creating, as as Raphael has, a, a, a thumb drive that boots Windows. The problem with that, well, for, for, first of all, that works it's useful. It allows you to sort of boot your own system that you carry around with you with, with whatever apps and things that you've got installed on it. The problem is you don't get containment. That bootable Windows would inherently be able to see all of the resources right. on the host drive that you've booted it to. So if the host drive were infected, it would, well, and, and it's, it's sort of a bi-directional thing. The host drive w- would not be running, but if you, if by mistake you ran something on the host drive that was malicious, it could reinfect your thumb drive. And if something were wrong with your thumb drive, it could infect the host. So you, you don't, in that scenario, get any containment, which is what virtual machines, one of the several benefits of using full-on virtual machine technology. Um, and his second question about using Parallels Compressor, yes, absolutely. You could take the image from the thumb drive, compress it using Parallels Compressor, which, as I said, you know, I did some some benchmarks of size. I mean, it is, that, that compressor really squeezes things down and then put that much smaller image back on the thumb drive. I was crying about the fact that uh, Parallels Compressor wasn't available for the Mac until I found out, and I got a number of emails saying, well, it's actually built into the Parallels version on the Mac. You don't have to buy it as a separate program. Exactly. I was dumb. I didn't know that. I also want to, to point out, and I learned this from Callie Lewis at Geek Brief TV, that there's a new program. She's going to demo it on a call for help this month called Mojo Pack. But I'd like you to take a look at it too, Steve. The idea is it's a PC on your USB drive. So it, it uh, your applications are in there. It's hard to tell if it's sandboxed or not. Um, but it's M-O-J-O-P-A-C dot com, and that's why I wanted to get your... Is it dot com or dot org? Dot com. Okay. And um, the idea uh, behind it is that you could put a, on a USB device or an iPod, for instance, kind of everything that you use, um, and you're working exclusively in the Mojo Pack environment, so you don't have to install it. Uh, and, and apparently it's running, you know, your desktop and everything running directly from the Mojo Pack. 
So it sounds a little bit like a like a bootable Nopix CD. Yeah, but right? you don't boot from it. That's what the oh. thing, and that's why the security oh, might be an issue, right? Okay. So good. Um, uh, we have had a couple listeners mention it. In fact, um, w- when I was going through questions uh, just this morning, pulling out these these twelve, I ran across it, and because I didn't, I didn't have a chance. Well, it's to, brand to new. Track it just it. came out of uh, beta like today. So oh, cool. <laughs> so I'm very curious uh, uh, to find out what, what its capabilities are. So uh, I'm not going to commit you to this, but I think we might want to look at this down the road. I agree. Yeah. It's actually also used uh, or intended to be used by gamers who can't install games at work who want to bring their games with them. <laughs> Mm-mm. Brian Haliger, soon to be a father. Congratulations, Brian, in that Tampa, Florida, wonders. I'm a network engineer with heavy skills in Cisco IP telephony, but not so much in security. I'm also a member of my local church, and as he said, a soon to be a father. In preparation for being a father, I've been thinking about ideas on how I might protect my daughter. Wow, he's starting early. She's not even born yet. From pornographic <laughs> websites and predators uh-huh. and chat apps, etc. You got a few years, Brian, I'll be honest with you. My question is in regard to protecting innocent eyes on the Internet. It is always something to think about, though, as a parent. I want to be able to teach non-savvy folks how to protect their children from obscenities on the Internet. I'd also like to give a class in my local church on how to protect your children from certain websites. Maybe even block certain chat protocols or filter, log the chat content so parents can have a little more visibility into who their children are speaking to on the Internet. Do you have any recommendations on a hardware device or software application that will accomplish this. Hardware would be ideal as it would control the whole network. Software would be acceptable as well. And the more user-friendly, the better because of the, the people I'll be teaching this product to will be typical PC users at best. Um, I, I like this for a couple questions or for a couple reasons. First of all, um, the first thing I would I would refer Brian to is our episode on the hosts file. Um, we've received a ton of great feedback since that episode on just, I mean, the the phenomenal difference people experienced when they just changed that one file to the the galactically comprehensive file, which we link to from the show notes, that third icon um, on our hosts file episode, because the host file, of course, intercepts a huge array of known yucky domain names and prevents browsers from going there so i mean it's it's so nice and such a simple solution because it it works universally among all machines all internet connected machines somewhere have a hosts file which is generally easy to find depending upon what platform you're on and you know it's it's a zero overhead zero footprint it's something you could easily for example in his church mode he could just say look folks you know here's the specific instructions depending on what kind of computer you have and it just does a a tremendous job of keeping your machine from going to these bad places the second thing that you know because he was interested in looking at some sort of a hardware device um, I wanted to sort of touch on the idea that that you and I talked about yesterday, Leo, of maybe doing a special episode where I really take a look at uh, what Astaro is offering. Many people have been sending us positive feedback about their own experiences, but I've not yet made time. You know, I mean, they've for us, they've just been you know a supporter of the show for a long time and i like the fact that they there was a good synergistic connection because they're into security but but the in from the standpoint of a hardware device what you really want is something which is managed something where you know as new bad things come along somebody is informing that hardware device of 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 what's going on, and that's one of the things that the the Astaro uh, gateway system does do for you. Um, it's not something that I've looked at, but you know it, it might be worth looking at. And again, we would let people know, of course, that you know I'm I'm not making an endorsement of it, but this is what the thing does. Yeah, we should certainly test it and uh, and show people what it does. That would be fun. Yeah. We we decided because Astaro is an advertiser that it would be probably something we'd do as a separate episode, not as one of the regular episodes. Just to avoid any appearance of conflict of interest. It's not something Astaro has asked us to do, but something we thought we'd like to do. But, you know, it's always well, a little it, tricky when a company is a sponsor. We have to be careful about how we uh, how we Exactly. And, and, and in this case, I mean, I really feel that it is being listener driven because yes. there's been a lot of feedback and people are saying, hey, you know. I'm trying to use it. Uh, what do you think of it? Right. And I, at this point, I don't think anything of it. So it, I, I ought to. 
Uh, one other thing I'd like to say, another sponsor, but this is a sponsor of my radio show, is a company called Phantom Technologies. This, I think, might be really more appropriate for Brian's clientele who are not, believe me, a star, the Astaro Gateway is not for a novice, uh, nor is messing with the host files. They make a hardware device called the iBoss that is a parental control device. And it is managed, but it's managed at their end. So just like their iPhantom, it trans all of the data that you are coming into your computer is going through their servers, uh, which is managed in the same way you would have a high-end Staro managed server. And so, uh, but it's not cheap. It's eight, it's ninety. I think it's ninety bucks, and there's a monthly fee. Good, a good solution for anybody who wants to control a large number of computers. I use it at home. Uh, so when we have four or five computers. And uh, it does all of the things that you'd want, including filtering out bad sites. It does not log chats. That's another um, uh, task. A really, that, a really separate issue. Yeah, yeah, you could use software to do that. And I have used software to do that in the past. When, but, you know, I have some issues about spying on my kids because uh, they're a little bit older. But I think that, um, you know, in the past, we, it's good to have the chat logs because if there have been any questions, we can go back and look at them. Um, it's also worth mentioning, too. I mean, Brian could could use these things these solutions that are available today over for the 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 folks he wants to help at his church but given that his daughter is not yet born he doesn't have to worry about it <laughs> um well and i guarantee you that nothing we're yes. talking about today will be relevant in 10 years or eight years or five years even when it starts to be a problem that you know she might be using uh, the internet. I think. I, mean, I think for his audience, uh, 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 you're absolutely right. For his audience today, though, um, myibos dot com uh, is something I would absolutely look at. I, I've been very happy with it. I use it. I've recommended it to a number of friends, um, and it, it it does exactly the job that uh, he's asking for. Except for, cool. as I said, for the uh, the uh, logging of the chats, and that's a separate software. And very, that's an easy thing to do. Sean uh, Milichick of Reading, sorry, Reading, Reading, Pennsylvania, warns of a nasty new eBay phishing attack. Well, I think there's more than a few of those. I just thought you might want to mention this on the show. There's a new, to me, phishing attack on eBay. I'm a seller with active auction listings. I received a standard email sent through eBay by another eBay member legitimately via their contact system. This is the way potential buyers contact the seller with questions about the items they're considering purchasing. However, the content of the email asks me to confirm whether my item is the same as the item in the link they provide. Of course, that link brings me to a fake eBay login screen, although they're where they collect your password and login. Although there's nothing new about linking to a fake login screen, I think this deserves mention for two reasons. The email comes from a legitimate and expected source, in this case eBay itself. And unlike most phishing scams where you may ask, which where many ask you to log into your bank account at a bank you don't use, there's a 100% chance here that the receiver is not only an eBay member, but one with auctions. Greatly increasing the likelihood of success. Thanks for the great, as always, Security Now podcast. I'm subscribed to the monthly donation program, mostly to support this show. Thank you for your donation. Um, I like this question because it stopped, it brought me up a little short. You know, I am I use eBay. I've been uh, purchasing some stuff recently. And eBay, from time to time, just expires your login. And even though you, you check the box of, you know, keep me logged in on this computer... And it will ask you to re-authenticate yourself. Yeah, I think most and, sites will do that. Well, and and, and, that, and that's the problem, is I realize, I, I mean, conscious as I am of phishing issues, and in any time I'm, I'm, I'm uh, going to a site where it says, hey, you know, uh, provide some information, I right-click on the page and check the credentials to make sure that this is, you know, really a site that's got an SSL certificate that matches the URL where I think I am. I mean, I'm, I'm diligent about that, but I realized I could fall prey to this. Yeah. If, if, if I were poking around eBay and I got a page following a link that said, oh, it's, you know, it's time for you to re-authenticate yourself, I might very well do that. So I just wanted to, to raise Sean's point. I, th I think he's right. This is a sneaky one, and it, it might get me. There is a, a very simple rule, you know, and I recommend everybody follow it. In the past, our rule was don't open email attachments, and it's, it's oversimplified because there are some email attachments that are safe. The very simple rule is do not click links in email, and the reason is in HTML email, you can hide what the link really links to. And uh, and so somebody who's not really paying attention will click a link in an email. It'll draw them to a website that looks like a legitimate eBay site. But if they look closely, they'll see it's not. That's how phishing works. But it all in all cases, it requires you to click a link in email. Otherwise, it's not going to do anything. So it's just a good habit to get out of clicking email links of any kind. And again, there's some safe ones. 
but it's hard to tell which are safe and which aren't. You agree, Steve? Yeah, and in fact, you know, I think I, I misread that a little bit. I was assuming that all of this was happening on the eBay site, but you're right. I mean, his note says, you know, he receives an email yeah. from someone. Yeah, and they it's can't. Like, okay. They can't. They can't fake a link in an email in an eBay site. R- right. Um, yeah. Right. So again, it's clicking that links in the emails that really gets you in deep doo doo. Don't do it. Matthew Bain of Atlanta, Georgia, had some great thoughts. I'm in the process of helping my aunt learn how to use a new laptop she just purchased for a therapy practice. She And by the way, <clears throat> just to go cross back to that eBay thing, what we didn't say is if at any time you, you see, you, you're concerned about a site you're on, it's asking you for log information, you can always get the certificate for that site and verify that it's the site you thought it was. Right. We should, we should mention that too. Uh, back to Matthew. I'm in the process of helping my aunt learn to use a new laptop she just purchased for a therapy practice. She asked me about how to keep her patient notes confidential and secure. She has a, actually, a, I believe, under HIPAA, a requirement to do so. I'm going to t- teach her how to use TrueCrypt to store all her documentation. I or- own a MacBook Pro, and I use Parallels for all my Windows XP needs. I was playing around with TrueCrypt on my Parallels VM to learn some of its features when it occurred to me one could have a completely secured, encrypted OS by using TrueCrypt and a VM simultaneously. Uh-huh. Oh. If one were to be running Windows or Linux with TrueCrypt installed, they could mount an encrypted volume, then create a new VMware virtual machine on that volume, and the entire virtual machine, including system files, drivers, applications, etc., would be encrypted. Instead of just encrypting your personal files from prying eyes, you'd be protecting the whole system. Is this a practical solution or simply overkill? Would there be a downside to using these two great products in this fashion? Well, I thought this was really clever and interesting. First of all, I wanted to compliment him and... Uh, his aunt on making sure that her laptop data yes. is kept confidential. You, there are <laughs> there are so many stories. I mean, it's it's phenomenal. Um, you know, people who read security lists are seeing this all the time. People's, I mean, government know, phenom- agencies. Yes, you know, the, social, who, who, the Veterans Administration. I mean, serious people who should know better. It's just unbelievable. I mean, even now, years after the, the, the early high-profile stories about laptops getting stolen, I think people just assume, oh, well, I'll, I'll keep mine right next to me, or uh, th- this will just be temporary. You know, temporary. It's, it's hard to understand what they're thinking when you know, data that they don't own is on a laptop, which is inherently portable. And It's easy enough to secure it. Uh, uh, they, they absolutely... It's crazy. It's yes, crazy. We, all, we see stories. There were just stories this week about yep. more government laptops missing. Uh, yep. All the all the technology is there. TrueCrypt is perfect for doing this. So I again, I wanted just to to salute Matthew and his aunt for like from from the start, they're going to solve this problem using TrueCrypt. And uh, for people who who are thinking about this and and may not know what TrueCrypt is, Leo and I covered this in an earlier episode called TrueCrypt. By all means, go back and take a look at it. It's just a it's a fantastic solution. Um, as for the idea of using TrueCrypt to encrypt an entire virtual machine, it would work, but I'm a little nervous about the overhead. What TrueCrypt does is it is on-the-fly encryption and decryption so that it's basically a filter which inserts itself between your operating system and a, a, a specific file or volume on your hard drive so that any data being written runs through encryption as it's going to the drive and then runs through decryption as it's coming back. So the computer always sees the data as if it's never been encrypted. The drive always sees it always encrypted. So you're super safe because nothing that's decrypted is ever written onto the drive. So it's a it's a beautiful solution, but that that bidirectional process of encrypting and decrypting on the fly will introduce some overhead. So so I would say, first of all, if you really want to do this, I mean, it's a great solution. It will work. You could give it a try and see if it slows you down too much. It just it might bog things down more than the benefit is worth, but it would work. Uh, that episode, by the way, was uh, Security Now 41. So if you go to twit.tv slash SN41, uh, you can listen to it right there on this page. And I was just looking at a news article because we're going to probably talk about this uh, on Twitter at some point. Uh, according to uh, the Commerce Department, 
or actually, uh, yeah, the Commerce Department, they've lost 1,137 laptop computers since 2001, most oh. of them from the Census Bureau. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, a lot of personal information on there. One hopes they uh, were using some sort of uh, encryption to protect those laptops. But that's, I mean, they just, they will go lost. And I, I always... Uh, do everything I can to protect the data on my laptop. Yeah, the, the only thing that, that I can imagine that it's apparently going to work is for really strict legislation to exist that holds the people who lose the data accountable and then makes the makes the threat of what could happen yeah. so onerous and expensive that people go, oh, well, God, I guess I have to figure out this encryption stuff. Well, well, it should just be part of the government build, for crying out loud. Right, it should be exactly. The, the IT people, yeah. when they're setting it up, it's ought to just do it automatic. without thinking twice and there should be no way to disable it and so and i i wouldn't be surprised if and we'll hear from them i'm sure but if they're already doing something like that and then and then we can hope they don't just write the password on the bottom <laughs> you can't you can't solve that problem <laughs> you're never going to get around the human problem <laughs> no kai dorton of niceville florida can you believe there's a place called uh, Niceville? i just love that leo when i saw that in the mail i thought okay you know here we got a bunch of dirt we're going to make a town. What should we call it? Let's call it Niceville. Let's drain the yeah. swamp and call it Niceville. I'm only up to episode 44. Well, he just heard the True Crypt episode. But I've made it through all those in under two weeks. Wow, wow that's, that's kind dedi- of that's, that's a, dedication. a crash course in security. I hope to be caught up in less than a week. I heard the question about how can virus damage a CPU? Can something through Windows or the BIOS... Hijack ACPI, that's the advanced uh, uh, computer power interface, something like that, and shut down the CPU fan and or other system fans at a time of high utilization to cause damage. I wonder, that, that if he's, I wonder why he's asking this question. Uh, well, it, it was interesting because, you know, uh, the question did come up, could something, you know, damage your hardware? Now, when a CPU gets overheated, uh, it doesn't it doesn't die it just hangs you know the 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 typical scenario is when when the when transistors get too hot they stop turning off completely they end up letting some some current leak through that'll cause the processor to to essentially just hang it'll just you know right. you'll, you'll you'll get we a system lockup yep, yep exactly so so that's what happens when when processors get overheated they don't die but hard drives do Hard drives really don't like running too hot. And it's one thing, it's one of the things that, uh, that I encountered a lot with Spinrite 6. Spinrite 6 continuously monitors the temperature of the drive if the drive is reporting it, and it will stop itself to allow the drive to cool off if the drive starts running too hot. And it, it was surprising to me uh, early in the development how many people were encountering this problem mm-hmm. because because what's happened is people are upgrading to 7,200 RPM drives from 5,400, which are more are, are drawing more power, are generating more heat, but they're sticking them into cases. They're 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 sometimes adding them to existing cases, um, and the cases are inadequate to keep all of that extra power cool so i mean it's conceivable that if something came along and could take over your fans which are under software control um and and cause them to slow down that you could create some permanent damage over the long term in your hard drives but your cpus would would, all they would do is lock up and you'd begin to get the sense pretty quickly that something has gone wrong here yeah um you know you can uh, and there have been viruses that have written to the cmos um, at changing the bio, so absolutely, and the theory behind this could could absolutely happen. Yeah. Although we find the virus authors these days are not interested in damaging the system. That's the exactly. old school. They, they want, want to use them. They want to use them. They want to sneak on there, use it for forwarding spam or putting adware up, and 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 so for that reason alone, that 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 would be counterproductive. They don't want to crash yep. your system. Joe Rodericks, who obviously has a GPS because he says he's located <laughs> at 42.01697 North and 70.967345 West. Did you figure out it was Massachusetts or did he? Yeah, he, he did. And I thought, okay, I, I'm not sure you want to give, you know, well, your exact exactly. location Within a few to, to, six, to six decimal places. But he did, so it's okay. Go see Joe. Maybe it's a Starbucks somewhere in Massachusetts. I hope so. I'm praying. What's the best way to go about setting up a file server on my network? I have an old PC I plan on turning into a NAS device. And then I figured, oh, hey, ho, why not make it externally available? 
What does he mean about? Oh, he means uh, like to the well, outside that's world. Well, that's a really good question. I didn't know what he meant either by externally available, but I wanted to to mention that um, that I've had really good experience using Samba uh, SMB or Samba on a a Linux or FreeBSD system and using that as a file server. So, for example, if he had a um, and he talks about being an old machine. Well, Samba is very efficient on, you know, as are as is in general Linux and FreeBSD. You know, any of the BSD machines, um, using that as a file server, and then you could also, of course, use it as your gateway, run NAT or a firewall or or whatever, so that you've got one machine which is your your network interface to the world. And, you know, if he really did want to make his files externally available, he he had the, he would have that choice then because that machine would be the interface to the Internet where, where he could, you know, and, and in fact, Samba does have lots of security provisions for, you know, passwords and logins and, and, and restricting IP ranges where things could be accessed and so forth. So one machine could be a sort of a, a general purpose file server internet interface for his network and all the machines in the network could then easily use just standard windows file sharing in order to access those files and that's One built of, in by the way to every version of linux and bsd and yes it, it, it is now samba is just an automatic well and it, uh, i have to say too that you know i'm i've never been a big user of guis on these linux machines well and there's no fact, need if you're doing a file server i mean who cares about the gui right well exactly but what's so cool is um, i do have free bsd servers at you know and our main facility at level 3 and i've got one here on, on my own local gateway i don't run guis on any of them because you know Linux and Unix are are generally sort of text file configurable. You know you've got you you've got various you know RC files and 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 any files and and various types of files to to manage and configure the system, but they're just text files. Well, Windows is a per, is a perfect GUI. I mean, Windows you got text files coming out your ears in Windows. So all I do is I I use Samba on those Unix machines. And then I can connect either locally or remotely to, and of course I've got obviously firewall firewall filter, so nobody else can even see that I've got Windows file sharing available. It's only my IP ranges, which are fixed at each end, that are able to see each other. So I just, you know, I I, I bring up my Unix file directory tree on Windows Explorer. And then use whatever editor I want, because Windows has great editors and a perfect GUI to edit the text files. So Windows is my is my um, management platform for these Unix machines. Yeah, that's pretty just, common. It really, too. really works wonderful. It's kind of a kind of a cross promotion here, but we're Jeremy uh, Allison, the uh, creator, one of the creators of Samba, the maintainer of the Samba project, is going to be on Floss Weekly in a couple of weeks. And uh, since you said you like BSD, and I know you like VMware, there is a uh, BSD-based uh, NAS distro called FreeNAS. NAS stands for Network Attached Storage, and so it's a very simple way to set up a NAS using a free BSD, absolutely free. And VMware, actually, it was one of the uh, appliance winners in their Ultimate Appliance, uh, Virtual Appliance uh, Challenge. It won uh, for um, Best Consumer NAS. So cool. it's, I would it's, think Joe wants to look at that. Yeah, it's small. It's 32 megabytes. So you can put it on a USB key. You could put it on a, actually what a lot of people do now is they put it on flash and, and they actually have the flash boot the system. You don't even have a hard drive uh, to boot the system. It boots into flash. And then of course you have the hard drives or, or storage only. Right. It's a nice way to go. Very. So cool. I, yeah, I think a lot of people are doing this. I bought a NAS cause I wanted the hardware, the uh, raid five hardware, but, um, you can build one if you got an old machine. Brian yeah. Larson writes from Joburg, South Africa. Cell phones uh, can log on to the Internet. You can browse with a phone's Opera uh, browser or Opera Mini, but cell phones don't have firewalls. What's the security problem? Yeah, I, I, th- I thought this was a great question. It is. Um, now. I'm scared. I didn't even think uh, about that. Yeah, and it is a security issue. Um, we certainly, we've already seen situations where, where cell phones have buffer overruns which uh-huh. are exploitable um i you know it is entirely 
predictable that as they become a bigger target, as more people are, are using browsers through their cell phones, and you know, Leo, that's my big application. I, I have a Trio 700P that I, that I love, and all I do is use it for reading news when, I, when I'm roaming around. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't support JavaScript at this point. That is, the, the, the Blazor browser, <laughs> the Blazor browser in, in, the, in the Trio does not support JavaScript, so that's sort of a good thing, and I'm using very simple WAP-based websites, which are just presenting small pages, and I'm mostly just reading text, but we know over time that's going to change. That technology is going to mature. The cell phones are going to be more powerful. People are going to say, hey, you know, I want to be able to do anything on my cell phone browser that I can do on my workstation. So we know that Java is going to be, you know, added to it, and there, along with that are going to come all the same security problems we've been dealing with on our on our much more mature platforms. So... You know, just keep an eye on security. It's going to be important. Yeah. Although, the you know, I guess the good news is these are such low-powered devices right now that they're not really a particularly attractive target. Right. Um, I mean, there's some personal data on it. But uh, let's see, that was Brian Lawson. This is Brian Voller of Ashland, Oregon. He brought up another interesting point regarding patents. I was enjoying your discussion on parallels in the last episode, 59, but I did not appreciate the idea that patents on saving the state of a virtual machine, we're keeping others from doing the same. This is a very, by the way, uh, hot topic in the open source world is the idea of software patents, and a lot of people don't like them. This is the same concept as state saving in console video game emulators for computers. Here's a Google search for posts before the filing date of that odious patent number (laughs) 64968475. I got a kick out of this because, first of all, we we did answer another of Brian's questions earlier, but... You know, the, Leo, you and I have talked about the issue of intellectual property rights, and and I'm I'm very uncomfortable about this whole issue of software patents. From you know, as a and developer, you're, you're a software developer, so the, you know you have potentially something to gain from these things. Well, yes, except that what I, what I have found is that that what the the patent office is issuing patents that it should not. That's the real and problem, yeah. That's the problem because because then you've got companies that basically have a license to fight each other. Right. Some other company says, wait a minute, that patent should never have been issued. The company that has it says, oh, we love our patent, we're going to defend it. <laughs> and, you know, and nobody wins but the attorneys. Yeah. You know, in this sort of fight, and from my standpoint, I'll the 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 line that's crossed is the is sort of this, and it, I mean it is it is understandably a gray fuzzy line, but it's the question of is this engineering or is this an invention? And the the language in the patent law, which I have read extensively because I've I've been really curious, like you know what's going on here, is it talks about. Um, it talks about a solution which would um, not be obvious to someone trained in the art. Mm. That is, and, and so the, this question of is this obvious or not? And what I find is that that most of the time, companies which are first into an area, they will, you know, they're solving problems and coming up with solutions. Well. For a company to come come along later to encounter the same problem and come up with the same solution, I mean, okay, sure, we see often that, that things are being invented at the same time by people who never talk to each other, you know, and so, I mean, that almost argues for the fact that these are not inventions, this is engineering. Right. And so, so you know, the idea being, okay, I'm a software engineer, give me a problem, I will solve it. Did I invent something, or did I just engineer a solution? Mm-hmm. And and so often, what I'm what I'm seeing are patents being issued for you know the only answer to a problem, which is not an invention. It's just you know you went to school, you learned how this stuff works, and then someone pays you to solve these problems. Right. Right. So you know, I, I it 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 upsets me that. That what I think we're going to begin seeing, and we're and this is already beginning to start, we're going to see an increasing problem with patents that have been issued over the last decade, which are are going to cause much more trouble than they have as companies begin to sort of run out of steam and have to start going to litigation in order to you know find more sources of revenue. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really become a real problem. And there's a there's a real uh, uh, challenge to this in the European Union where they don't really have uh, these kinds of things. And, uh, and or they hadn't had software patents for a long time. And now they're starting to implement them. And it's it's a problem. It's too bad. Well, and, and, and you see fact, a lot of companies formed just to fight just to, you know, fight over patents. Well, and, yeah, and there are companies that are just all they do is acquire patents right, right. and they're just big litigation firms. Right. Um, the original theory was that software could not be patented because software was just mathematics. Hmm. That was the argument that, that the courts decided a long time ago. And they said, you cannot patent mathematics because it's it's nature. I mean, right. it's just it's here. It's you know, it's just it's all around us. It's it, it's it's not something which was invented. And then what happened was the way people began to get around this was that they would they would describe a software invention as a in a hardware embodiment. They would they would actually design hardware which would do the same thing. So they would patent the hardware and say, well, but the hardware is not the preferred embodiment. Mm. The preferred embodiment is this little software over here that's what they really wanted to do. But they sort of, say, they sort of wedged it in by initially designing hardware to do the same thing. And, and then over time, you know, the patent office just sort of gotten, I guess they got tired of these ridiculous arguments that, okay, fine, if you just want to patent software, we'll let you do it. <laughs> and, and, of course, now people are patenting genetics. Right. They're like, they're like, you know, patenting, again, things that already exist in nature that they didn't create. They just found them and said, oh, we're going to get a patent on this gene. It's out of control. It's, like, uh, it's, it's really it's out bad. of control. It's bad. Steve, we've run through all 12, and you've done a great job. I think it's time to uh, give you a, a day off. <laughs> well, we're going to have a week and a half off since we're recording this That's one right. early. That's right. But we'll be back for number 61 uh, in, in terms of listeners listening to this uh, one week from now. Yeah. Don't get confused by what Steve just said. We, will, <laughs> we, will be, we are going to be consistent every Thursday, as, as we usually are. Yep. Thank, thank you, Steve. We want to thank the good folks at Astaro, too, who are our sponsors and our supporters. And as Steve mentioned, uh, do a really cool product called the Astaro Security Gateway. It is, uh, uh, you know, something I use. I use the 120. And, of course, it's something that big businesses and big companies also use. It is a very sophisticated device. But what's nice is it's based on open source software. And, uh, and, they've, and they've done it right. The, uh, the sponsors of uh, the show, Astaro Corp, have offered your small or medium business a special deal. If uh, your business needs superior protection from spam, viruses, and hackers, as well as complete VPN capabilities, intrusion protection, content filtering, and, of course, an industrial-strength firewall, all an easy-to-use, single, high-performance appliance, they will give you a free trial, a free demo. You just contact Astaro at astaro.com. Or call 877, the number 4, A-S-T-A-R-O, and you can schedule that free trial of the uh, Starro Security Gateway Appliance in your business, which is fantastic. And of course, as always, and I really want to underscore this, non-business users could download the software version of uh, ASG for home use at astaro.com. So another good way to build a uh, security server uh, would be to just get an old PC, download the free software, put it on there, and then I think it's something like seventy nine euros a year. You can get the full subscribe to the anti spam, anti virus, uh, and uh, automatically updated uh, firewall and so forth. Astaro dot com. Steve Gibson, we will see you next week. We don't know what Absolutely. we're going to talk about. It'll be something fascinating, no doubt. No doubt. Have a wonderful week, and we'll see you all next time on Security Now. Security now.